Let's open our Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We are beginning to look at the last paragraph of this epistle. We've spent several years working through it, and we've come to the beginning of the end. This is the last significant theological paragraph that he begins, and it's about our spiritual warfare. And when we came to this passage, I told you that in our last study that we needed to do some defining. So our first sermon was kind of a systematic theology on who is Satan. It was a biblical biography of Satan. And for today, we're going to ask a collateral question before we dive into the verses themselves, and that is, what about demons? Significant question. It's one that you've probably asked and probably even answered before. So we're going to look at that specifically from a systematic theological perspective from many texts. But first, let's just read the paragraph to know that which we will be instructed by once we dive into there. Ephesians chapter 6, verse verse 10. Paul says, Finally, it's the last significant theological section. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Four, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and, having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We're taking a little bit of time in our study of Ephesians to set up this final section of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. As I said, before we talk about our battle with Satan and the demons, we need to answer, do we really understand who Satan and the demons are and the limits and the extent of their powers? In this final paragraph that I just read to you, Paul instructs the believers at Ephesus and consequently you and me how to do battle in spiritual warfare. In other words, how to defend ourselves against the enemies of our Lord and the enemies of our souls, the devil and his henchmen. So in our last study, we did a systematic kind of overview of Satan, an introduction to Satan and who he is and his biography biblically from, from the Bible's perspective and not from Hollywood's, as it were. The only true understanding and account of the devil is the Bible's. And for today, we'll do a brief introduction, and I underline the word brief, to demons. Let me just say from the beginning, this will be introductory and an introduction, not a comprehensive treatment. It would take us many weeks to do that. I have 
stacks of books on my desk that I've been looking at, and we could spend countless weeks diving into this. But let me just say this. This is super important. Remember this. Most of the questions that we need to answer about demons and about Satan are going to come out as we study the believer's armor. And the reason is, Paul says these are the the armaments, these are the defensive uh, shielding uh, uh, armor that you need to have to defend against the devil and the demon's attacks. Therefore, the armament that he gives us, the armor that he gives us, gives us tremendous insight. All the insight we need to know on what the devil does and what the demons do, what they can do, and the extent and limits of their power. Let me confess from the very beginning, there are many things that we simply do not know about demons and demonology. And God doesn't reveal them to us. I remember when we studied in the Gospel of Mark, the, the garrison or the Gadarene demoniac. Remember the, 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 the man, Matthew tells us there were a couple of men who were full of a legion of demons, you know, thousands of demons in these men. And we... It's amazing to me how Mark just records what happened, and he doesn't say, and by the way, let me tell you about demons and animals. Let me tell you about their infestation. Let me tell you about possession. Did the, did the demons possess the, the, the pigs, or did the pigs possess the demons? He doesn't tell us anything. He just says they jumped in the demons and committed suicide. <laughs> it's bad, but I, it wasn't my joke. C.S. Lewis wrote much about this war in his classic between us and the enemy, the demons and Satan, in his classic book, The Screwtape Letters. It was a satirical book from the vantage point of a demon named Screwtape who was mentoring his nephew on the temptation of people. And it's a very fascinating read with much biblical insight about how demons and how uh, uh, Satan lays traps in front of us that cause us to be tempted. In that book, Lewis commented with these words, there are two equal and opposite errors into which the race, our race, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased, the demons themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight, end quote. So as we begin our study, as we begin our study of spiritual warfare, I want us to identify these two extremes that Lewis talks about, understand them, because it's easy to gravitate to overly, over-interest in them or absolute ignoring of them. He draws these two parallels, polarized extremes, Lewis does, in what I just read. But the Bible, interestingly enough, handles the subject of the enemies of our soul, demons and Satan, differently than looking at these two extremes. And over the coming weeks, as we study this passage at the end of Ephesians, we'll be looking into God's Word to understand the work of Satan, the work of demons, as well as our resources and our responses to these enemies. And we're going to find that the Bible is understandably clear on what demons do and what we're to do about it. 
But I think one of the things you're going to discover is that one of Satan's lies, one of his schemes, one of his ploys is to keep believers in one of these two extremes, over-infatuation where we think there's a demon behind every corner and absolutely ignoring them and believing that they don't even exist. So can I just outline those two extremes for a moment? Because we need to be aware of them so that we don't fall into them. The first, that error of demon disbelief. Demon disbelief. There are many who simply do not believe that Satan and demons exist. Or maybe they do believe in these creatures, but they think they're irrelevant or powerless. Why? Because they don't see that life is a spiritual battle. Their lives are perhaps easy, and they forget that the battle is going on whether they see it or not. And these people, Satan sells them a lie that can ease, that the ease of their life is an indication that all is well in the world, especially in the spiritual realm. However, tremendous insight from what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1. It gives us a chilling view into this and other erroneous extremes. 1 Timothy 4.1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, it's an important phrase. Toward the end, some will fall away from the truth, from the faith, paying attention to the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Notice, very important, that the enemy is, is trying to lead us away from the faith, away from the truth. And that's also a sign that we're in the latter days. Paying attention, Paul says, to deceitful spirits. That makes sense that the demons, these deceitful spirits, would be deceitful. Why? Because Satan, their ruler, is the father of lies, right? One of his primary tactics is to make us believe lies. It's the same with the demons. One of the biggest lies he has sold the world, and even some Christians, is that he is irrelevant, or that he even doesn't exist, or that he exists but is powerless, That's materialism. Materialism. You say, why is that materialism? Not like trying to get a better car or a better house. Not that kind of materialism. But looking at the world and saying that what we see is all there is. It's a materialistic worldview. Ignoring spiritual realities, spiritual issues. Where did he plant this lie in our generation? Pretty easy to see in evolutionary theory. You see, in evolution, all things have a naturalistic and a materialistic explanation. If you believe then that the, the world around you is all there is, then you probably won't believe in Satan or demons or angels or fairies or trolls or ghosts or even God. All of that that you can't see is, con is confined to the same category. You can't see it. It doesn't exist. but a disbelief about the demonic realm makes an easy leap from disbelieving that they exist to disbelieving that God exists. Satan knows that, so he sells us a lie that he's just a made-up part of Halloween. If he can get a Christian to think he's no big deal, then he can spin his hideous webs in their lives and stunt their spiritual growth more easily 
We have to ask ourselves, do we realize that he exists? Do we believe he exists? Do we know we're in a fight? Now, full disclosure, I'm going to quote a, a man who is with the Lord now, who's been a tremendous mentor of mine through his writing, David Pallison. And I tell you that because you're probably going to hear a lot of quotes from David Pallison in the coming months because he is so insightful on this, this issue. He says this, downplaying or demythologizing spiritual warfare usually creates a pernicious domino effect. Prayer and worship become hallow forms. God's power and aid are little needed and little expected. Sin becomes psychopathological or social maladjustment. The Bible becomes a remote object, not the voice of the living God, end quote. All because we believe in a materialistic worldview that what we see is all there is. But honestly, that's an extreme that's more easily dealt with than another extreme. And that's the error of demon hysteria. Demon hysteria. This is the movement that really got full wind under its wings in the 1980s and has not looked back since then. It's growing rapidly. It's going unchecked with what the Bible says. It's a movement that creates emotion and fear and irresponsibility. So much so it could be called hysteria about demons. The whole horror industry of Hollywood is built on this. Now, as we discuss this error now and in coming studies, I'm going to refer to it as deliverance ministries. You'll hear that over and over. A deliverance ministry is the idea that some people have demons and the, the solution is to deliver them from demons or deliver the demons out of them. It's deliverance ministries. Now, I think it involves well-meaning people who believe that they want their friends and their family members and their counselees helped from maladies, but they believe that What's wrong with them is they need to be delivered from the attacks of the devil and the demons, from invasion by the demons, indwelling in the influence of Satan and demons. And central to this belief is that demons are, are basically behind everything and causing everything, anything and everything bad. This system of belief creates the idea that these demons and even Satan himself can be cast out of people called to the carpet, rebuked, held in check, binded and bounded, taken authority over, even spoken to with authoritative derision as you would with a little child. Satan, I command you. Satan, I have authority over you. Satan, I bind you. And, and it just doesn't make sense logically because if you tie Satan up, have you now kept him from working in the rest of the world? And how does he get loose? And how long is he bound? In other words, it shouldn't surprise us that bad theology creates bad practice. Back to our passage in 1 Timothy 4.1, which is really against this exorcist movement of deliverance ministries. Back in 1 Timothy 4.1, 1, 
Not only is Satan's strategy to lie and deceive, but also to have doctrines of demons, is the word in the NASB, fill the heart and theology of the church. Now, that's an interesting phrase, the doctrines of demons, because the NIV translates that things taught by demons. The ESV translates it teachings of demons. The New American Standard translates it doctrines of demons. But the Greek phrase can really be taken to mean two things, things taught by demons and or things taught about demons. In other words, it shouldn't surprise us that the last half, half century of the church history of church history has produced more speculation and more literature about demons and Satan than the entire 2,000 years before that combined. Seems we are indeed bumping up against the last days. Now, I want to isolate a, a few works that have really were the, the genesis and the, the, the seminal works that kind of put us where we are today in this deliverance mode, in this deliverance ministry uh, mindset. Frank Peretti's best-selling novels of fiction in the 1980s, This Present Darkness and Piercing the Darkness, added much fuel to the flame of deliverance model of ministry. His stories tell of Christians who enter the battle with packs of demons, who've taken down towns, infiltrated the government, changed the educational system, controlled churches, and stunted growth of believers. All which have kernels of truth, but the way he describes it is extra or ah, not in the Bible. It's amazing that these books gained the theological following that they did, honestly. But I want to remind you that Peretti's books are fiction. It's unfortunate that so many people, even leaders of deliverance ministries, have adopted this fiction as fact. I told you the last time that I remember reading these books and getting a little freaked out about my responsibility because at the end of the, of, I think it was the first book, the, 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 the hero of the book is when he's praying there's a demon and an angel fighting in heaven. When he's praying, the angel is winning. And when he stops praying, the demon wins. And I just remember, I got to like, be praying all the time or God's going to lose. Who's sovereign in that equation? Some say that if you're dealing with trouble, having trouble with sin, have a spiritual warfare expert come and cast out the demons behind it. As self-deliverance, you can do it yourself. Sometimes it's applied to maladies. I, I, I had a friend of mine, I kid you not, who I had a cold and, and I was sneezing and blowing my nose in a tissue. And he said, do you mind if I cast out the demon of post-nasal drip from you? Well, if it'll help. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> Others in that movement assert that demons are not only assigned to territories, but are behind territories, but are assigned and cause specific sins in your life. Another seminal author in that movement in that decade was Neil Anderson, who wrote a book called The Bondage Breaker. This book instructs Christians how to deliver themselves from satanic and demonic influences. In chapter 12 of that book, he provides specific prayers for exercising, doing an exorcist ceremony with yourself of the demons of unforgiveness, the demon of pride, the demon of homosexuality, the demon of suicidal tendencies, the demon of abortion, eating disorder, substance abuse, and a whole host of other sins. But it doesn't stop there. There's a prayer in that book 
to keep demons away from you during the day, a prayer to keep demons away from you at night, and even a prayer to cleanse your house, your bedroom, your apartment of demons who live there. We'll come back to that errant theology when we get into the armor specifically in the coming weeks. But for now, recognize this. These prayers are actually more like magic potion charms than they are praying. And not only that, they are prayers to the devil. Who wants to teach theology that involves praying to Satan and demons? But the deliverance model does. This is only a small sample of what's going on in these deliverance ministries, and we're going to consider them much more in the coming weeks. But what does that do for us today? Where does that take us today? Well, the Bible clearly teaches that demons and Satan really exist. I was interested in our last study, I, I made a, a comment that some of the younger kids asked me about and were a little freaked out by when I said, I believe that demons are in this room right now. And they remembered that, but they didn't remember when I said, and so are angels and so is God. They're crying about it right now. <laughs> I believe Satan exists, and I believe that demons exist. The Bible also teaches us how to deal with these creatures and how to overcome them. Consequently, it is our responsibility, it is our duty to clearly understand the Bible's theology about these beings. And we also must understand our relationship to them so that we will not be fooled and tricked and deceived by Satan or left defenseless to his powers. So what I want to do this morning, and here's, the, here's my qualification. I'm going to ask a few questions and answer them that I think will help us to begin the study. But most of the questions we really need answered about demons and Satan will be answered as we go through the schemes of the devil and each individual piece of armor. Because the armor actually tells us what the enemy is doing to attack us and how we defend against it. So that's all going to unfold. What we're going to do is ask five introductory questions about demons. Spoiler alert, the last two questions are just going to be introductory that will be answered in the next paragraph of Ephesians. So we're really going to take a deeper dive into the first three. Five introductory questions about demons. Number one, who are these rascals? Who and what are demons? Now, I ask you that because there's this old mythology that comes out of medieval thinking that if you're a good guy, a good gal, if you're a good person and you die, you get to get transformed into becoming an angel. You get your wings. There's a certain Christmas story. No, we're not going to go there. Consequently, or on the other side, if you're a bad person and you die, then you become a demon. It's not true. They're different creatures. Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed to man once to die, then the judgment. We don't become anything else. Demons and angels are different creatures than our people. In fact, Peter tells us they don't even understand salvation. They look at God forgiving sinners and saving sinners, and they don't understand that because he doesn't offer salvation to demons. So as we studied last time, after the creation, 
of all the creatures, including angels, there was an angel called Satan who rebelled against God and fell morally. But he did not rebel and he did not fall alone. A whole host of fallen angels rebelled and fell with him and on his side. How do we know that? Because Satan is said to be the ruler of this group. Listen to Matthew 12, 24. We're going to come back to this text in the future, by the way. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, they accused Jesus, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul. We studied last time, that's the name for Satan. The ruler of the demons. So we find out that he's the ruler of the demonic realm. Now this rebellion, by the way, of Satan and the demons was so severe that the eternal fire of hell was created by God primarily to punish them. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, God, depart from me, accursed ones, talking to people, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I don't know if you know this, but hell was created for Satan and demons. And unbelievers are tossed in with them. Now, some of these demons were bound into a pit pre-hell consignment because of what they did in Genesis chapter 6. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, 2 Peter gives us an insight here. God did not, if God did not spare, this is 2 Peter 2, 4, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, that's when we now, now we know that demons are angels because Peter tells us explicitly that they, explicitly that they, are, they are. He did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. Ah, now we know the context for when this happened. Genesis 6, right before the flood, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, which he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Similarly, Jude 6, angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the day for the judgment of the great day. So what we find out from those two passages, and you collate that with Genesis 6, is that there, was, there were a group of demons, not all of them, but a group of demons who attempted to have a domain with man, cohabitate with man, be with, be with man in a unique and an intimate way. And God judged them. They couldn't roam about the earth. He threw them into a pit. However, we find out something about these demons during the tribulation. The released. Revelation 9. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth and power was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. 
They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days, men will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, and death flees from them. And the appearance of the locust was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. This vision of these demons is interesting. They had hair like the hair of a woman. Their teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates and like breastplates of iron, the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to battle. They have tails like scorpions and stings, and their tails, in their tails, is their power to hurt men for five months. Verse 11, they have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and the Greek he has the name Apollyon. We studied those last time as names for Satan, for the devil. So these ones that have been bound will come back during the tribulation to have a special ministry of tormenting during that horrific time. Here's the issue. Demons are fallen angels who work against God, work against his plans and his people. You say, what about the demons who are, const- who are, who are here now? What are they doing? That's what we're going to be studying. So just wait. They are formidable. They are powerful creatures who must be taken seriously. That's why Paul takes the time to give us instruction about them. Number two, what do these rascals do? What do demons do? What can they do? This will be introductory. We're going to come back to these passages, but just hold on tight. They sometimes promote idolatry in Acts 16, 16, 1 Corinthians 10, 20, Revelation 9, 20. Since Satan is not omnipresent, but they do his work, these henchmen extend his power all around the world and to almost every person. That's Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. They can cause mental disorders, Luke 9, 39, and Mark 5, 15. They can inflict physical infirmities, Matthew 9, 32, and 33. This can even occur sometimes in saints. You say, What? With God's permission, Satan afflicted Job physically. Jesus saw that a woman who was bent over for 18 years caused by a spirit for which Satan was responsible in Luke 13. We don't know if she was a believer or not. Paul had a thorn in the flesh, which was apparently a physical malady, which he interpreted due to an angel of Satan, a messenger of Satan that might buffet him. He may have meant a person, but behind that person was still the power of the devil. Sometimes demons are responsible for the propagation of false doctrine. We just read 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1, 1 Kings 22, 22. Demons may be used by God to carry out his purposes. 1 Kings 22, 22 says so in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Sometimes they seduce humans into immoral activities. 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 3, they tempt us. They have power to work miracles and signs to deceive men, Revelation 16, 14, and 13, 12 say. They sometimes attempt to instigate jealousy and faction and pride among believers and in the church, James 3, 13 to 16 tell us. 
they may impart superhuman physical strength to people. We know that from the Gerasene demoniac in Mark chapter 5. No one was able to contain this man physically. They sometimes act as fortune tellers and prophets in Acts 16, 16. They even exercise power and influence in human governments, Daniel 10, 13. That's a lot of activity, and it's just scratching the surface. However, in contrast to that list, nowhere, nowhere does the Bible attribute the responsibility of our personal sin as Christians to Satan or to demons. If you're young, just humor me, but flip this one was wrong. Geraldine was wrong. The devil doesn't make you do it. He can tempt you to do it, but he can't make you. As we're going to learn in the coming weeks, demons can tempt a believer, they can influence us, but they cannot make us sin. It's going to be your primary theological foundation in the coming study. All right, let's ask the question. This is the big one everybody wants to know. What about possession? What about demon possession? Now, if you're taking notes, just stop for a second and look up because I want you to hear me as clearly as possible. This is, this is going to be a little bit of a shock to some people, I think. You may be surprised to discover that the Bible, in the original language of Hebrew and languages of Hebrew and Greek, the Bible nowhere says that a person is ever possessed by a demon. Oh, I know the English says that because that was the King James translation, and translations kept that in keeping with some. But nowhere does the Greek say that demons possess a person. But it does say a lot about what they do. The word is demonized, as we'll see in a minute. We are introduced to demoniacs, those who have a demon. They possess the demon, or the demonized, Matthew 4.24, the New American Standard uses the word possessed with a demon, literally having demons in Luke 8, 27. Driven by a demon in Luke 8, 29. Whom a spirit or a demon seizes in Luke 9, 39. Whom a spirit assails or seizes in Mark 9, 18. A man with or possessing an unclean spirit in Mark 1, 23. He who has or owns an unclean spirit in Mark 3, 30. One uh, whom uh, a spirit enters, Matthew 5, uh, 12, Afflicted with unclean spirits, Acts 5, 16. Harassed or troubled by spirits, Luke 6, 18. Containing Evil, an evil spirit in Acts 19, 16. Also, the demoniacs themselves, these are the men who are demonized, the demonized people are, are the ones who sometimes are said that they possess the demon, not vice versa. The Greek word is daimonizomai, daimon demonized. And a closer look at these occurrences of Daimonizmai shows that it describes a broad, broad range of conditions. Some of these symptoms are physical. Some are emotional, mental, psychological. The cause is identified as direct demonic influence in all of these cases. An answer 
The answer that Jesus gave and early church, the early church leaders gave for these conditions was indeed exorcism, to call them out. But that's not anywhere commanded for you and me, and we're going to talk a lot about deliverance ministries and the error of exorcism in the coming weeks. Nowhere in the New Testament are Christians instructed to cast out demons, even to speak to them. And if there was ever a place we were told how to talk to demons, it would be here in Ephesians 6, and there's no mention. And many times in the New Testament, being demonized produces symptoms that look like normal illnesses that result from living in a fallen world, like blindness, seizures, deafness, and deformities, all at one point were caused by demons and specific people in Jesus' ministry that he healed and cast out of, but not everyone who is blind or has seizures or is deaf or has a deformity Can they trace that back to being demonized? You say, how do you know? Wait till Ephesians 6 and you'll know. Other times these demonized people suffer severe disorders and the mind and mental health community would would deem them as psychological or psychiatric disorders. And sometimes I think they're demon-fed and demonized and demon-infested. However, The Bible nowhere describes the possibility of a Christian being demonized. Oh, they have a ministry that they're after us, but we don't possess their presence as an unbeliever can. And by the way, if you want to talk about demon possession in a most biblical uh, uh, expression, the only place that even comes close is Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And that says that every unbeliever is owned by the devil. Instead, we as Christians are attacked by Satan and demons in ways that Paul calls the schemes, the strategies of the devil. And this is going to occupy our attention in the coming weeks. So, no, as a Christian, you cannot be demonized or possessed. Be encouraged by that. And as we'll see in the These unique episodes of demonic activity in the time of Christ and the early church were so that God could show his power over them in the origination and propagation of the gospel. Now, for these next two questions, I'm going to refer you to our our upcoming study. How can demons and demonic activity be identified? How do you know if it's a demon? The simple answer is that Demons influence people to believe that good is bad and bad is good. That's the simplest, highest overarching assessment. Each piece, though, of the believer's armor gives exacting insight into the strategies and lies of the devil and demons. That's why he tells us to apply this particular defensive piece of armament. So understanding how to put on and use this armor that Paul describes will make us alert and sensitive to demonic activities in their attacks. (laughs) C.S. Lewis voiced this in the demon screw tape. He said this to his nephew. It's funny how mortals always picture us, demons, as putting things into their minds. Screw tape says, in reality, our best work is done by keeping things out of their minds, like Ephesians 6. I think you're going to be surprised and encouraged by 
understanding the schemes of the devil so that you know how to fight them. It's very simple, but that's not the same as being easy. And the last question is, what are we to do about these demons? What is a Christian to do about demons? Can I give you a really quick answer? You might want to write this down. Verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not material, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places or the heavenlies. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. That's what a Christian is to do about demons. The upcoming series will hear Paul answer that question in specific. So, Paul's description of the defensive armor that a Christian is to wear tells us exactly what we need to know about the work of the devil, the work of demons, their power, their limits, their specific ways a believer believer is to fight them, defend against them. These forces of darkness are after us after the well-being of our souls. And Paul says, here's what to do about it. And he never says, cast them out or talk to them. My mentor, Dr. Zimek, wrote this. Although believers are in union with Christ, we are not to be presumptuous so as to seek to engage the arch enemy and his host. Our call, and we're going to look a lot at this, our call is to be aware of his methods, 2 Corinthians 2, 11, stand defensively in the provisions of God, Ephesians 6, 10 to 18, and resist, not engaging him in battle, but resist him in faith, James 4, 7. So take up, verse 13, the full armor of God, so that, so that, you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Paul has already spoken to the reality of demons in the lives of unbelievers and who need the gospel in Ephesians 2, 1 to 4. Now he'll transition like he does in chapter 4, in verse 4 of chapter 2, to tell us, but God has done something special and unique in us. You'll hear this again. I'm so thankful for John. In 1 John 4, 4, who says, Greater is he, God, who is in you, than he, the devil, who's in the world. That's good news. The devil is not out to scare you, as Hollywood would think you, make you want you to believe. He's an angel of light. He wants to make you sin and distance you from biblical truth and what the gospel truly is. As we're talking about this being Reformation Day, can I just encourage you that his, <laughs> Satan's greatest hope, desire, is that you won't believe that you can be saved from your sin. You can be saved from your past. You can be saved from the... the the desires that can 
compel you to make the wrong decisions in your life. You can be saved from being punished, rightly so, by God in hell forever by believing what he did for you, sending his son to die the death you and I deserved instead of us as a benefit to us and giving us the righteousness that we need to live in heaven forever. And we know that it was true because he didn't stay dead. He resurrected from the grave. So we've laid two kind of bricks in our wall, two introductory foundational pieces. Who is Satan and who are demons? You have a lot of questions left. Paul's going to answer some of them, but he might not answer all of them. I don't think at the end of Ephesians we're going to say, oh, now I know why demons went in pigs. I don't know, but they did, and what a sight that was. But you will know what they're doing to get you and how you can defend against the schemes of the devil. Father, give us fresh awareness of your provision for us. Fresh belief in the reality of the devil and his henchmen so that we know what they're doing to attack us and confuse us and contaminate us and tempt us. And we'll have a strategy for fighting our own flesh and fighting the devil who uses it against us. Thank you for this clear instruction from your word in Jesus' name. Amen.